Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exiting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish Commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's get started with prayer. Avinu Mokino, our Father, our King. Lord, we thank you for sending us your Son. We thank you for sending the light into the world that we may not grope about in darkness. For indeed, we have seen his light and we have testified that he is the one that we have been waiting for. We thank you also for... Um, sending your spirit after him for fulfilling the promise that you made uh, to the disciples and indeed to all of us that you would send the comforter and that he is the one, the Ruach HaKodesh, the one who reminds us of your words, the one who uh, fills our hearts uh, with love and with joy, with, with compassion. He is the one that empowers us to live a life that is pleasing to you. And he is the one that will um, continue to, to, to keep us and to sustain us for it is by the for, for it is by your very power that we are upheld that we are uh, kept uh, in your mercy and in your grace. Um, thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to our own devices, that you have not um, abandoned us, that you have not uh, given us a, a spirit of slavery, but uh, or a spirit of fear uh, that we f- should uh, fall back into slavery. But yet you have given us the spirit which causes us to cry, Abba, Father, and we, we know that your promises are true and that your love is, is being demonstrated through your Son. So give us a heart to study your words. Uh, help us as we press through this book of Galatians. Um, we seek to understand its words. We seek, we seek to apply its truths. Uh, we seek to be changed by uh, what we're reading. We don't just want to read it for, for trivia's sake. We're not just studying because it's a novel thing to do or because it's, it's a Hebraic thing to do or something like that. Um, we want to, uh, we want your words to, to penetrate deep into our hearts and to change our lives and to affect, uh, a, a cleansing within us, a continual washing over us and so that we can, uh, stand before you renewed and refreshed and, uh, forgive us where we fail you. Help us to, uh, continue to walk circumspect. Uh, being wise because the days are evil. Uh, help us to continue to forgive one another where we fail one another and uh, continue to demonstrate a messianic sympathy towards one another. Indeed, uh, Lord, you said it best that uh, they they will know that you are my disciples when you have love one for another. So help us to demonstrate that love for each other. Uh, give us opportunities to witness and share with others around us um, for indeed the world is lost and dying, and uh, we have the truth. 
we are the light set on a hill. We are the salt of the earth, and uh, we take this responsibility very seriously. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining me again once uh, once again. Here we are uh, in the book of Galatians. Uh, my name is Ariel ben Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher out at Congregation Kihilat Tuna in Thornton, Colorado. You're certainly welcome to join us on a Saturday. Uh, I believe it's Saturday mornings now. I think they changed their time since I've been there. I'm not coming to you from Thornton, Colorado myself. Of course, I'm on the other side of the world. But if you are in the Denver area and you are able to visit our congregation, it's just north of Denver and Thornton in the Westminster area, then uh, stop on in on a Saturday and join us for Shabbat service, okay? Uh, let's date stamp our recording real quick. Today is September the 9th, 2017, and today is week 72, and we've been plugging along on our commentary for, wow, I, I, I went back and looked at the date. I think next month, starting October, we will have been going through the book for, or through the study for two full years. Wow, Baruch Hashem. And we're just going... Not really verse by verse, but somewhat verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and and paragraph by paragraph through the commentary that I wrote, which is about a little short of 200 pages long, in case you're interested in printing out. You can reach the commentary online at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Right on the homepage, uh, you can click on the link that says Galatians Commentary. Uh, or you can click on the link at the very top <clears throat> that says Live Internet Galatian Study, and all of the relevant information is there to include the link to the PDF document, and uh, somewhere on the page there, maybe near the bottom, you should see links to the ongoing live uh, recordings that I'm making each week that I upload to the iTunes store uh, a few days later, and I upload them to my website there as well. And then... Um, you can also find information on joining the study if you'd like to receive the uh, the mailed out notes, the emailed notes. Um, this will help you keep tr- better track of the study since I send out which notes we're going to be covering each week. And I also make announcements as to any um, cancellations or any time changes or uh, anything like that. And then lastly, once I make the uh, uh, audio portions available, I send out the notice with a link to the audio portion in the newsletter itself. So why don't you go ahead and do yourself a favor and uh, subscribe to the Galatians newsletter, the Galatians live study newsletter, and um, it's free. Just uh, uh, put your email in there, and I don't, of course, why would I sell your email to anyone else? Uh, and my servers don't do it either. So uh, I'd love to have you join. You can also uh, find information about the Q&A session that occurs afterwards, what we call a live after-chat session, for about 30 to 45 minutes or so. For the students who are with me in the live Skype session each night, we engage in just a little bit of friendly chat, question and answer, uh, We, you know, whatever the Spirit leads us to do at that moment. Usually it's just kind of chatting, uh, throwing back questions and questions and comments back and forth, but uh, you know, we've been known to pray with one another and just encourage one another and do things like that and just chat and have some fun, okay? So you're welcome to join us each week uh, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, about 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Sometimes it's a little longer, sometimes it's a little shorter, okay? 
All right, uh, let's see. Did I cover everything in the intro? I think so. Well, then, for those of you who are with me in a live class, we'll go ahead and get started. If you look on your screen, if you're all joining me by way of computer or a smartphone or something like that, tablet, then you should have on your screen Genesis chapter 1 pulled up. Uh, but I don't want Genesis chapter 1. I want Genesis chapter 2. There we go. And we're going to do a little bit of liturgy, little bit of liturgy. I like to read a little bit of Hebrew and a little bit of Greek just before each study. And so I've chosen, since we're going to talk in Galatians chapter 4, we're going to talk a little bit about days and months and seasons and years. This verse that Paul accuses the Galatian Gentiles of falling back to. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit today. So I thought I would read some passages that have to do with some days and months and seasons and years, particularly the Sabbath day. Right, the most well-known day in Judaism. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. I'm just going to skip through the Torah of three books, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, and read about two or three verses here and there, just because they're Sabbath-related verses. They're familiar to those of you who are used to reading liturgy on uh, either a weekday, weekly basis, uh, a daily basis, weekly basis, Sabbath basis, something like that. If you look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1, just the first three verses, in English, and this time the English is not the ESV. The English is the 1917 Jewish Publication Society version. And <clears throat> the English of number one says, And the heaven and the earth were finished, verse one, chapter two, verse one. And the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, verse two. And on the seventh day God finished his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made, verse three. And God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because that in it he rested from all his work, which God in creating had made. Let's go back and read the Hebrew. That was verse 1. Verse 2. And verse 3. And one of the reasons I read this is because of what we're going to be reading in Galatians chapter 4 later on in the liturgy and what we're going to be studying in our study tonight. We're actually going to hit chapter 4 verses 8 through 11 tonight. But... Um, also, I read this verse because, as many people are well aware, this uh, these sections about God uh, uh, setting aside the Sabbath day after doing his work on the seventh day and blessing the seventh day and hallowing it and things like that, this is all done thousands of years before a Jew hit the scene. So many, many pro-Torah believers, such as myself, many proponents of, of keeping a Torah-based lifestyle, a Hebraic lifestyle, are fond of reminding those uh, who are not uh, inclined to keep a Torah lifestyle, who believe that the Torah has been done away with and things like that. In other words, your traditional Messianic camp versus your traditional Christian camp all over again. Uh, the Messianics are fond of reminding the Christians that um, that this Sabbath passage comes thousands of years before there's Abraham or a Jew or Moshe or anybody like that. Thus, the Sabbath... This reinforces the notion that the Sabbath was made for man and not made for the Jews. In other words, the Torah, it's often 
you've often heard, to quote a, a phrase that Tim Haig is fond of using, you've often heard that um, the Sab- that the Torah was given to Israel only and that was made for Jews only, and that's why the Jews have to keep it. But Christians, particularly Gentile Christians, are not obligated to keep the Torah because the Torah is for Jews only. Particularly the sign of the, to- the the sign of the Mosaic Covenant being the Sabbath, then if the Sabbath was made for the Jews, then the Torah should uh, should attest to that fact. But here we have God creating and making and sanctifying the Sabbath, and there's not a Jew in sight. So it would seem to give a better uh, expression to the idea that the Torah was created and sanctified and set apart before there were any Jews around, before there was any uh, Abraham or Moshe or anything like that. And uh, so I think it's a stronger argument <laughs> that that uh, the, 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 the Sabbath is a testimony of God's creative work, uh, his finishing of his work, resting, and uh, we're later on we're going to read how this ties into uh, uh, God resting again. We'll see this in Exodus here in a moment. All right, so let's turn now also to a passage in the book of Exodus where God in, joins Israel, this time Israel proper, because now, now by this point in time, Israel does exist. And God enjoins them to remember to keep the Sabbath. And he even adds a penalty if you fail to keep the Sabbath. This is Exodus chapter... Uh, chapter 31, and starting actually in verse 12 and working our way down through the end of the chapter, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, uh, there's a section there where God talks about the Sabbath. And I'm not going to read all of those verses. I just want you to be be aware of the immediate context. Uh, There's a lot of repetition in the verses, but I just want to single out these two verses, verse um, 16 and 17, because it's just uh, very streamlined, you know, direct and to the point. The English reads, verse 16, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for perpetual covenant. And verse 17, It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and rested. And here again we see that Moshe reiterates that this is a sign of God's creatorship, that it's this is a uh, um, a reminder that God made the heavens and the earth in six days, and then on heaven, and then on the seventh day, He ceased from work and He rested and was refreshed, as if God needed to rest, right? But He did, and therefore God gives us this sign of His creatorship and a sign of resting. And this sign, this oat, uh, is to be out throughout the generations of Israel, and therefore is to be kept as a perpetual covenant, the Brit Olam, we're going to read about. So this is one of the reasons why uh, Jewish people and the uh, Gentiles who have joined themselves to Israel, to name Israel's God as their own, and to worship the God of Israel. This would include, of course, we Messianics who keep a Hebraic lifestyle and yet believe in faith, keep our faith in Yeshua. We will not let go of the Sabbath no matter how many verses are uh, seemingly twisted out of context to say the, state the obvious otherwise. Because the plain sense of the meaning of the verses here do not allow for any sort of relaxation of the Sabbath. Indeed, it says it's to be done as a perpetual covenant. Let's read the Hebrew. Uh, verse 16 says, Verse 17 says, 
All right, let's go read one more passage. Because remember, when we get to Galatians, Paul's going to talk about days and months and seasons and years. Let's read about some of the seasons, which would include the Sabbath. Let's jump over to the book of Leviticus real quick and turn to chapter 23. And we'll just look at the first one, two, three, uh, maybe the first four verses. That should catch the what I'm trying to convey. And again, reading from the English, uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, verse 2, Speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, The appointed seasons of the Lord... Which ye shall proclaim, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocation. Even these are my appointed seasons. Verse three: Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no manner of work. It is a Sabbath unto the Lord in all your dwellings. And then verse four: These are the appointed seasons of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim their appointed seasons. All right, in their in their appointed season. All right, let's go back and read the Hebrew, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, verse 1 says, Ve'idabar Adonai el-Moshe le'mor. Verse 2, Daber el-Bnei Yisrael va'amarata alehem mo'de Adonai ashirotikra'u otam mikra'e kodesh elehem mo'adai. Verse 3, Sheshed yamim te'ase melacha uv'yom hashvi'i shabbat shabbaton mikra kodesh kol melacha Lo ta'asu, Shabbat hi la Adonai b'chol moshvotechem. And verse 4, Ele mo'ade Adonai mikra'e kodesh asher tikra'u otam b'mo'adam. And again, notice that in these few verses that God is speaking to Israel. So we got the same subjects as we had earlier in Exodus chapter uh, 31. And we've got the same reminder about... Um, Six days work shall be done. Seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy convocation. Don't do any work. And it's a Sabbath. There's no reminder about him creating heaven and earth or anything like that. But we don't need that reminder. That's okay. We know that it's the same Sabbath. He's not talking about a different Sabbath day. Um, but interestingly is that the Sabbath is couched right in the middle. It's at the beginning of this introduction in this in this chapter about these other holy convocations, these mikra uh, a um, the the the, the Mikra'e Kodesh, the holy convocations, and these are what the Bible calls appointed seasons, right? The the Moedei, the Moed is 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 a, an appointed season in the in the singular. The the Moedei Adonai is the the a genitive there, and um this this it tells us that these are appointed seasons of the Lord. That's really what I uh, want to point out in this passage, is that these are the Moedei Adonai. These are the seasons of the Lord. They are seasons that God sets aside. It's not that these are Israel's holy days. These are God's holy days. It's God's Sabbath. It's God's seasons. And these are the appointed seasons, holy convocations, Mikra'e Kodesh, holy convocations that God sets apart, yet Israel proclaims. Did you catch that in verse 4? These are the appointed seasons of the Lord, even holy convocations, right? Which ye shall proclaim in their appointed season. Did you catch that? Otam These are These are the holy days that God sets apart, but yet Israel is tasked, is charged 
with proclaiming them. So it's not so much even that we are just uh, commanded to keep them. We're actually required. We're commanded to proclaim them. Proclaim them to who? Proclaim them to ourselves. Proclaim them to the rest of the world. Uh, proclaim them. Just proclaim them because God says to proclaim them in their appointed season. So I think Israel is doing a pretty good job in that regards of, of proclaiming them and keeping them to the best of their ability, even though unregenerate Israel under the power of the flesh doesn't really have the power to fulfill the Torah the way that God designed the Torah to be fulfilled. Nevertheless, I believe, and I've talked about this in previous teachings, that there is a, a, um, a temporal framework to the Torah that allows a temporal man, an unregenerate man, to actually keep uh, a measure of the Torah that is pleasing in God's eyes, because it's, in other words, it's it's doing good because it's the good thing that God created us to do, and He gives us this this moral compass, this this um, uh, moral power to actually do it, to actually turn from evil and choose to do good, even though we're unregenerate men, we still can do good things. And one of the good things that I believe that we're able to do, and in fact we are responsible for doing, is actually walking in Torah, especially as Israel. So God actually even promises a reward for keeping the Torah. So I think, that, and I mean, obviously these are temporal rewards, but the point I'm trying to make is that these, uh, this, this obedience that is incumbent upon man is not only within his grasp to do as an unregenerate man, it actually... If it follows through that if he continues down the path of righteousness that's described by Torah, that the Holy Spirit sooner or later will kick in, will jump onto the path along with him, and start steering him towards the teacher who is the goal of the path, which of course is Yeshua. And this is this exactly how the Paul describes the Pythagogos in the book of Galatians chapter 3 around the end of the chapter. All right, that's going to be our Hebrew for tonight. Let's turn to some Greek. We've got on the screen right now Galatians chapter 4 pulled up, and uh, we're studying chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, but to get a running context for our liturgy, we'll go back and read verses 1 through 11. We'll read all 11 verses here real quick. We, we studied chapter 4, verse 1 through 7 last week. If you missed that, go back and get the podcast. Um, but we're going to continue that same discussion because we're talking about the heir who is a slave who's the owner of everything, and yet once he graduates or once he grows up and becomes of legal age, then he's no longer a minor, then he can inherit that which the Father has set aside for him. And uh, we're going to see how this plays into Paul's discussion to the Galatian Christians who thought that they had not yet, to use Paul's analogy, had not yet matured. But we're going to find out that based on their faith in Yeshua, they actually have matured. All right, so the, Greek, uh, the the liturgy for tonight is Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And if you're following along with me on the screen, you'll see once again I've got the ESV pulled up. This time I'm using a, another different website. I'm, I'm always in the market for finding a, a, any new websites that help me get you know, do what I'm trying to do more efficiently. And this one seems to fit at least one of my needs, and that is to have the, the, the um, English and the Hebrew, uh, the English and the on the either Hebrew or Greek on the screen at the same time, like I just had a moment ago um, for the Hebrew portions of the Tanakh. And so what I've got is um, Bible.com's website pulled up, and I'm logged into my account, and I can see now uh, Ephesians, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 4 out of the ESV on the left side, and the SBLGNT version on the right side, the Greek there, the, the SBL version, the Society of Biblical Literature. 
which is one of the Greek texts that I'm fond of using. All right, let's read the English, and then I'll go back and read the Greek. Verse 1. I mean, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Okay, I skipped a verse in. It's because of the, uh, the we start with a, with a conjunction right in the middle of the verse, so let me try that again. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That reminds us of that passage in Romans, right? Verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Verse 10 is the one that ties it back into our liturgy from this morning, or from tonight. You observe days and months and seasons and years. What's Paul talking about there in verse 10? Is it all those Sabbaths and, and festivals that we just read about? Hmm, we'll find out a little in a bit. And then the final verse, the final Pasek, verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. All right. Let's go back and read the Greek, and you'll see if you're looking at my screen that I highlighted some verses out of the English, and we'll we'll explain why a little later on. All right, uh, the Greek reads verse one: Lego de ephasin kronon ho kleronamas napias esten uden diaphere dulu kurias panton on verse two: pa epitrophus epitrophus esti kai oikonamas achri tes Protes mias tu patras. Verse 3. Hutos kai hemes hate amen napioi. Hupa tas doikea tu kosmu hemetha dedulumenoi. Verse 4. Hate de elthen to pleroma tu cranu exapestelen hotheas tan wian altu. Genomenon et gunaikas, genomenon hupadamon. Verse 5. Hina tus hupanamon exegorase, hina tain viathesian, apalabomen. Verse 6. Hati de este vioi, exapestelen, hotheas to pneuma tu viu autu, estas cardias hemon. Krazan Abba Ho Pater. Verse 7. Hoste uketi e dulas ala wias e de wias kai kleronamas dia theu. Verse 8. Ala tate men uk edates theon edulusate tois fuse me usi theois. Verse 9. Nun de genantes theon malan de Gnosthentes hupatheon, pos epistrophete, palen epita 
asthene kai patokas doikea hois palen anothen duluen selete. Verse 10. Himeras parateresthe kai hemas kai kairus kai iniautus. And the final pasik verse 11. Fabumai hemas me pos eke kekapiaka es hemas. Okay, now let's um, let's remind ourselves where we are in the middle of this particular chapter. Paul is la- has launched into a second analogy. This is similar to the first one that he used in the previous chapter. And indeed, I believe that it's sometimes better to remind ourselves that in the original letter that Paul wrote, there were no chapter breaks. So it's easier to understand the final few verses of last chapter with the first few verses of the of this chapter. Indeed, if I go back one chapter in the uh, English and go down to scroll down to the last, say, three verses, in the English it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you have were baptized unto Christ have put on Christ. So we've got this theme of sons, right? We're all sons of God. This is something that formerly Israel alone enjoyed this status of being called the sons of God. Recall from Exodus chapter 4, I believe it is, where God says, Israel is my firstborn son. It's either 3 or 4, one of those two. And yet the Gentiles who have now been grafted into Israel via faith in Messiah can enjoy the same status as sons of God through faith in Messiah. Same way that natural Israel needs to become a, a, a son, not just in a natural sense, but in a spiritual sense. Verse 27 says, For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul, again, is affirming their current status, not some status that they have not attained to yet. And then he reminds them that there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. The unity of the body is described by Paul in terms that cut across social and ethnic boundaries. Indeed, one of the primary blindnesses that Israel had in the first century was uh, her own ethnicity blinded her to the fact that not only were the Gentiles um, to be included into the peoplehood of God as Gentiles, but that they themselves as Jews were not secured a place in the covenant unless they too matriculated to faith in God, which equals faith in God's Messiah, Yeshua. And thus, Paul can challenge both groups, both Jews and Gentiles, that there's only one way that God counts a person as righteous, that that, that God um, extends this uh, status of, of righteous or, or um, uh, we talk about dekaiosune, this, this status of of holy or the status of there's another word I'm looking for that I can't think of at the moment um, set apartness right there's only one way that a person can can have this uh, declaration pronounced on him and that's if he uh, places his his genuine unreserved trust in Yeshua and Paul's affirming that the Gentiles if they place their faith in Messiah then they have already reached the thing that they have are seeking, the goal that they are seeking. And that's what he says in the very next verse, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, right, there is a condition there. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And Abraham's offspring are the ones that receive the promise. They are the sons that God promised to extend this righteous status to. Okay, and the the, the reason I brought up... Um, 
the the segue from from the previous chapter is because the last verse where he says, "If you're Christ and you're Abraham's offspring, you are heirs." Right? Heirs is the kleronomos ver- word that we've been talking about earlier, and so there's this this uh, status that the Gentile Christians already enjoy, if indeed they are genuine Christians. Therefore, they don't need to seek another status change, the kind that the influencers were. Uh, teaching them or preaching to them this pseudo gospel, this false gospel, this other gospel, the gospel, the, the what I call the gospel of conversion, the gospel of proselyte conversion from Gentile to Jew. And now we can jump to chapter four and see that um, Paul says, "I mean that the heir, the heir, the kleronamas, as long as he's a child, he's no different from a slave, in, even though he's the owner of everything." And he moves now into this new analogy of um, how that until the son, the person that was declared to be the heir, the person, the Kleonamas, until he's, he reaches the age of maturity that the father has determined, he can't inherit the blessings. He can't inherit the family heritage. He can't inherit that which the father has set for him to inherit. And yet, how does this relate to the Gentiles? Well, if they've already reached the goal of Messiah, then they have already matured. They don't need to um, seek for a, a, a maturity, something that the the influencers or you know the, the Judaizers have them think that they don't have. Instead, they've got it. They've made it, and we can see this if we jump down in the English to verse six. And because you are sons, not if you are sons, hati de este weoi, because you are weoi, because you are sons, then God has sent the Spirit. Of course, we know the Spirit is the linchpin. The, the Spirit is the the determining factor that, it, for Paul is what proves that you are children of God, that you are sons of Abraham. It's the Spirit's work that it, that can regenerate a person. We know this to be true from other parts of Paul's letters, that unless you enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit at a heart level, then you cannot be counted as a genuine son. You cannot be counted as righteous. You cannot be counted as dikaiosune. You cannot be counted as saved. It is only the, the, the Spirit's work on your heart uh, causing your eyes to be open to see the Messiah, to confess him as Lord, to uh, um, to declare that Jesus is Christ, it is only the, by the power of the Spirit that a man can be brought back from the dead, that he can be changed from death to life, uh, that can be counted among the living. And so this is what causes the Gentiles to become sons. It's not any supposed um, change from ethnicity, from Gentile to Jew, it's not any uh, uh, concomitant uh, Torah observance that would follow after a, a proselyte conversion ceremony or anything like that, or it's not even even what the, the Gentile, I'm sorry, what the Christian Church later describes as uh, the keeping of the Torah, something like that. Paul is explaining to them that they've made their way to the teacher from the previous uh, analogy with the Pythagogos. The, 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 the Torah has done its job by leading the, the boy, by guiding the boy along the path to the teacher. That was one of the jobs of the Torah. And now that the Torah has done its job, they don't need to seek any other method of to be brought along to the teacher. In other words, the Torah doesn't need to be utilized in that particular fashion again. It, it drops off in that sense. It doesn't drop out of their lives altogether. We've discussed that before. But in terms of bringing an unregenerate person to the point of salvation, the Torah plays that role and function. And as I understand Paul's theology, it only plays that function once. 
Now in verse 7 of this chapter, chapter 4, Paul um, reminds them and, and re- reiterates this, this truth that so you are no longer a slave, you're no longer a doulas, but a son, a la wias, right? But a wias, this wias is the Greek word for a son. You're no longer a slave, a doulas, but now you are a wias, you're a son. And if a son, a de wias, then an heir, kai kleronamas, right? Now we can claim this uh, sonship and an heir through God, a kleronamas diatheu. And this sonship is something that we don't do on our own. Remember what I said last week, God only has one natural born son, and that is Yeshua. He is the only begotten of the Father. All of the other sons that God has, this would include me, this would include you if you're listening to my voice today and you name the name of Yeshua. All of us, all of the rest of us are adopted and we're adopted through faith in Yeshua. And therefore, we're no longer slaves, we are sons. And if we're sons, we're heirs through God, we're heirs through the promise, we're heirs through adoption, we're heirs because we've been brought into the family because of what Yeshua has done on our behalf and because uh, the Spirit has expressed uh, this in our hearts. Now we can move down into chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter, I'm sorry, verses 8 through 11, and see that Paul's uh, concern for the Galatians, because he's he's explained to them that they've made their way to the goal, they've reached the teacher in, in the previous analogy, and they have matured as sons into heirs. Now he's concerned about their... Um, about their uh, uh, cons- consideration for embracing this this ceremony of the proselyte, or uh, as Christians would call it, for embracing the Torah. Um, either way, even it's a it's a legalism. It's it's a mis- It's a door that's going to lead nowhere. Um, recall that from previous uh, studies that um, I believe that until a person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit and becomes to be counted as dikaiusunu, counted as righteous in God's sight, um, there is going to be the issue of the deadness of sin, the the heart that is cold, the the flesh that is dead, the the, the mind that's clouded by pride, and, and basically the old man reigns. And therefore, there's no way that a person can see the Messiah in this particular state. There's no way that he can be counted as righteous, and therefore there's no way that he can truly fulfill the righteous requirement of the Torah. Therefore, he cannot turn from his sin. He cannot seek God. He cannot uh, know the forgiveness of his sins uh, in his mind. And Paul's going to uh, begin to remind the Galatians of where they have come from so that they can understand where they're at. He's He's... He's mentioned it earlier, how about um, in verse 3, in the same way when we were children, right? Uh, when we were uh, napioi, the Greek word for children, not sons, different than the weos. When we were children, napioi, which is little children, right? Immature children. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And this is the Greek term that we looked at last week. We were enslaved to the um, uh, the stoikeia to kosmu. And this word stoikeia has been defined a few different ways by Greek authors, and Bible dictionaries, and lexicons. Some of, the di- some of the definitions describe this 
idea of the the elementary principles of the world the, the what we might call the building blocks of the universe that the Greeks imagined the the four elements the earth the the wind the fire the water and um these building blocks these these rudimentary principles of the universe uh that the Greeks had described had permeated not only um secular society of their day so that even the common man thought of them as as being real and necessary uh, parts of, of understanding how the universe was formed and was held together. But it also crept into the religious um, worldview of Paul's day, meaning um, the, the Gentile, the, the, the pagan religions around, around Paul, in other words, the, the, the non-Jewish religions, right, the Greek religions, the Roman religions, they all had this something in common about their, their common belief in the stoicheion. The, these elementary principles of the world, that the building blocks of the of the universe, and um, this 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 also crept into uh, what we call, uh, like I said, religious practices. It was not just something that um, your uh, everyday man believed; it was something that the religious people believed. But by Paul's day, there's every evidence from, for instance, Philo, and I, I'm not going to turn to all those sources now, but just trust me that I've done the research this time. Philo seems to suggest that even the the Jews of Paul's day were not immune to this kind of thinking that the building blocks of the universe were what formed and and held the universe together. The you know the four elements, the 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 elementary principles of the world were were not not only something that were was important to keep and hold the world together and how the world was formed and fashioned. But they actually, with the help of the doctrines of demons, right, that we read about in other parts of Paul's writings, with the doctrines of the demons, we find that unregenerate man actually found himself to be worshipping these stoicheon, these, these elementary principles. And so in this way, we became enslaved to the, the, the prince, this, this, uh, we became enslaved to this, um, doctrine that not only were the four principles uh, primary in the universe, but actually they also control the destinies of man. And so we end up with this idea of the destiny and the fates and the and this whole Greek notion of um, how that the stars control your fate because the stars are uh, comprised of the elements of the world, the elementary principles of the universe. And, and you can see how... Uh, uh, astrology gets tied into this, and all manner of um, Gnosticism, pre-Gnosticism, which it was uh, kind of uh, becoming apparent in the in the first century before it became full blown in the in the second and third centuries. Gnosticism, um, this whole idea that that instead of giving worship to God because of the, He being the creator of the universe that we read about in our liturgy, how God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day. Instead of giving credit to God and, and worshiping God, uh, we read about in the first chapter of Romans that man worships the creator. Man worships the, I'm sorry, man worships the creation instead of worshiping the creator. And in his mind, he, his mind becomes futile. God gives him over to a reprobate mind because of his worship of the creature instead of the creator. Instead of giving God the credit, man falls down and worships the stoicheon, the elementary principles of the world from which he thinks the whole world not only is held together, but is also controlling his destiny and his fate. And so Paul reminds them that this is their status before they've come to Messiah. 
And now he's going to warn them about turning back to that. Well, how does that figure in with their wanting to become Jews? Let's read about that. All right, let's read my commentary. It's actually not a very long commentary, and that's why I spent a little extra time explaining the background. All right, um, so to create the segue, we're in my commentary on the middle of page 140, and last week uh, I reminded you that um, in the middle of the commentary we see that, this was the comment to verse 6 and 7, that in these two verses, which kind of forms the uh, conclusion to Paul's thought, which indeed is also the primary uh, uh, message that he's trying to convey in these first 11 verses that we're studying. And the primary thought is this. The true theme of Paul's letter to the book of Galatians is that God determines genuine and lasting identity based on our personal identification with Yeshua, not based on establishing our own way of righteousness. And this status that we are seeking Right? Remember the Gentiles were considering changing their ethnicity because they must have been seeking something. They must have felt that they were deficient in some area. And this status that they're seeking is the status of righteousness that God declares to a person. Of course, this is a fancy lingo for saying uh, that they would be counted among the righteous and become saved. They would be counted as saved. That's the terminology that we're really describing. God sends the Spirit into their hearts and causes them to be counted as true sons and thus true heirs, and that's what I mentioned last week. As we move down into verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, where Paul reemphasizes this notion, he warns them about the dangers of returning to an allegiance to their former lifestyle. Not that really they could lose their salvation, but re recall that there are always those people in a community of saved people, there are always those people who are still in what I like to call decision mode, meaning they may, they may have made an intellectual decision that Jesus is Lord, but in their hearts they're not truly born again yet. And so with, within any congregational group, within any church group, within any uh, body of what people profess to be Christians, there's always going to be at least three kinds of people in the group. And this is just basic, common sense from a social perspective. The three people that you're always going to encounter in any church group are, one, genuine Christians. People who are genuine believers, they know God and God knows them. Two, genuine unbelievers people who don't know God and God doesn't know them in the salvific sense, yet they are there because they're seeking. They're there because of family. They're there because of friends. They're there because of boyfriends and girlfriends. They're there because they just want the social interaction. They're there because they're lonely. They're there because their parents are making them come. There's a variety of reasons. There's manifold reasons why they could be in church, but one of the reasons they're not there is because they're of, of believing in Jesus. In other words, that one's missing. <clears throat> So, they're just there, but they're unbelievers. So that's the second group of people. And the third group is the people that are kind of in the middle. It's not that they're halfway saved and halfway lost. That's not what I mean by in the middle. What I mean by is they're, they're genuinely unsaved, but in their mind they may have made an intellectual decision that Jesus is Lord. So they've listened to the preacher over and over again. Maybe perhaps they have come to an intellectual decision that the Bible makes sense, that the logic is, is sound, and that uh, for now this seems the safest option to place their bets on, although they've not personally surrendered to Jesus, they are in decision mode in that sense, or they may even be def 
uh, deceiving themselves. Their their mind is tricking them. Uh, that is to say, they don't know for sure that they're not saved. They they think they're saved because it's it's um it's the logical thing to to believe and or it's the safe thing to believe and or it's it's the the social the socially acceptable thing to do or there's a variety of reasons why they could be in a state of decision mode even though they may not even know that they're in decision mode some of them do but some of them don't there are a great number of people who attend churches that think they're saved but they're actually not saved until the spirit opens their eyes and then they can then look back on themselves and realize that for many years they played church and they they played Christian, but they weren't really Christians. So those are at least three kinds of people in in every church today. I I must agree. I must admit that I think there must be these same three kinds of people whenever Paul writes his letters, and therefore they're applicable to the churches and groups that Paul writes to. There are three kinds of people, and so if you do not yet know Yeshua, then you are still in decision making mode. Perhaps you are one of these people who might be tempted to turn back and go back to your former lifestyle if <clears throat> if it becomes expedient for you to do so, whatever is the convenient thing to do at the time, to perhaps save your own skin, to save your own neck, to avoid persecution, to run from trouble, to whatever, 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 fill in the blank. We have the same thing going on today. People who claim to be Christians until the, until the, the water heats up and trouble arises, then they jump ship and say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not one of them. I'm, I'm, I don't belong to that church. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I'm, I'm just, you know, Joe Schmo. I'm not some, you know, First Baptist church member or whatever. Don't, don't, don't identify me with those people. So they, they, they turn their backs on Jesus because they weren't really part of the group to begin with. Okay, Paul is going to start addressing some of these people as well. <clears throat> Look at verse 8 and verse 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, jumps from the active to the passive, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now this is a very telling few verses. Let's read my commentary and see if I can make some sense of it. Paul makes the shocking statement here in Galatians that before his readers came to Messiah, they all, both Jews and Gentiles, were slaves to demons. They were slaves to demons. Also recall 1 Corinthians 10, 20 and 21. And if I pull up that verse real quick. Um, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's verse 20 that's really the kicker. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons. What Paul's uh, explaining here in uh in that passage is that the pagans being the gentiles it's the greek word for for gentiles as well is that the people who don't know god are actually in the same category that he's describing here in the book of galatians they are enslaved to those that by nature are not gods well who would that be these would be the demon the demon uh powers that were permeating through and still do permeate through any and all false religious systems of the world the false religious systems of the world may seem benign. They may seem uh, innocent. They may, in some cases, they may actually seem benevolent. They may seem um, uh, righteous and holy and good and and uplifting and and otherwise good-natured. Some of the false religions of the world seem very altruistic. They seem very um, 
uh, well-meaning, uh, you know, uh, very peaceful is the words I'm, I'm trying to describe, uh, very harmless to, to other people and to other religions. They seem very tolerant of, of differences and things like that, and they don't seek to, to tear other people down or hurt anyone. And yet, in reality, any religion that is not rooted and anchored in the finished work and person of Messiah Yeshua is a false religious system, and as such, it's under the control of demons. It's under the control of those that, by nature, are not gods. And Paul wants the people to understand that unless you are on the side of God, then you are against God. What does, God, what does the Torah say? If you're not for me, you're against me. That must be shocking to those people in those false religious systems who think, we're not doing bad, we're not worshipping demons and devils, give us a break. No, I think that's in your head, they would tell us believers. But Paul explains to them, until you come to Messiah, both Jews and Gentiles are slaves to demons. Also in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says there that we turned to God from idols to serve the living true God. So it's not only that all false religious systems are controlled by demons, but that all false religious systems are also idolatry. All of them are. There's only one true religious system or one true religion, if you want to call it that. And unless we turn to that true religion slash relationship with God, we are slaves, we are serving idols, we are worshiping devils and demons. And that's the truth. Uh, and there's no way to get around that. I say in my commentary, so much for our supposed fleshly pedigrees outside of God's saving grace to rescue us from our own degenerated state of existence, right? Serving demons and devils and ultimately serving ourselves. That's the state that we're in. What pathetic wretches we were before Christ found us and washed us clean. I think that once we begin to see our true identity before the blood of Yeshua purchased us, if we can kind of re- recall where, what, what domain we belong to before we were rescued from that darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, if we can understand from where we came, then we can start to appreciate, I say in my commentary, the awesome price that God paid to actually redeem us. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but I didn't come from a place of of strong uh, bondages and slavery, at least in my social life before I came to Messiah. I wasn't the drug addict. I didn't do alcohol. I didn't do drugs or alcohol. I didn't run with the wrong crowd. I didn't come from a life of, of prostitution or crime or or murder or uh, adultery or uh, any of those things. They were, they were not prevalent in my life. And that's only by the grace of God, because I was raised in a Christian home, and I went to Christian schools my entire life. And as a result, there was a there was a um, there was a social uh, envelope around me that protected me, as it were, the same way that the Torah lifestyle protects the children of Israel, even while they're minors. The but this this lifestyle protected me. I think it shielded me, and it was God's grace. I say because it wasn't my own doing. It's not like I could have chosen the family I was born and raised in. But this this upbringing caused me to have a very strong sense of right and wrong, and, and it gave me the ability to use my God-given conscience, even albeit, albeit an unregenerate one, but my God-given conscience to turn from sin, uh, to never pick up a cigarette, to never uh, be addicted to alcohol, to never be addicted to pornography, to never uh, stick a needle in my arm, to never go down the path of, of adultery and, and, and fornication and and all of the other ugliness that many people find themselves 
um, uh, beset, besetted with, right? The, the, the sins that eagerly beset you. This doesn't mean that I didn't struggle with other boyhood, uh, uh, weaknesses and, and other things that people, uh, deal with as unregenerate men. Uh, you know, your, your selfishness and your greed and your lying and your lust and, and your general lack of faith and, and, and doubt and, and fear and things like that that everyone else struggles with from time to time. But the point I'm trying to make is, I, even though I didn't lead a life that was as, I'm using quotes with my fingers, as bad as other people, nevertheless, I still belonged to the kingdom of darkness. I still was in control, I still was being controlled by Satan and his demons. Whether I knew it or not, or liked it or not, or was aware of it or not, right? Satan can, ca- can lie to a person and cause them to think that, this is before they're saved, by the way, Satan can fool a person into thinking that everything's okay. You know, he can fool a person into a leading a what, what might be an otherwise a well-meaning, good-natured, good-tempered, good-tempered life, right? A person who seemingly does no harm to his neighbor, doesn't kick, his, doesn't kick dogs, helps old ladies across the streets, and things like that. These are the type of people that, that are probably, in my opinion, sometimes the most danger because, uh, they're like the, the frog sitting in the water that you gradually keep turning up the heat. Uh, they don't know that they're in danger. They're not in, aware of the of the darkness that they dwell in. They're not aware of the demons all around them. They're not aware that Satan is their god and that their eyes are blinded by the the god of this world until Jesus can come and rescue them. So I go on to say on my commentary, the passage that we're reading here in eight and nine verses eight and nine speaks of some of his readers turning back to those weak and miserable principles. Uh a view supposed by historic Christianity to be a return to Judaism and the Torah of Moses. And to be sure, in the eyes of the church, these verses, uh, which speak of the enslavement that Paul warns against, uh, in the eyes of traditional Christianity, the enslavement here that Paul warns against in, in verse 9 is the bondage to ceremonial commandments such as Sabbath, circumcision, and the dietary restrictions and things like that. But can this really be the correct interpretation of weak and miserable principles? Is this really what Paul means by the weak and miserable principles? Let's keep reading and see if that's really what he means. I say in my commentary that elsewhere in Paul's letters, he he actually calls the Torah itself holy and the commandment holy and righteous and good. And that's in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. You can see from my footnote there. So, now, I realize in Romans chapter 7 that Paul can say this because he's a believer, and he can recognize this because he's a believer. And it's equally true that until a person has their eyes opened by the Messiah, that they, they really can't recognize the true nature of what the Torah is for them, that it is really holy, righteous, and good. They can pay lip service to the Torah, like many unbelieving Jews do today, speaking of its holiness and its righteousness and its goodness, but they can't truly know it from the inside out. They can't know it until God makes it known to them. But Paul describes the Torah this way because Paul can re- recall from where he came. He gives us this vantage point of, of recalling every now and then throughout his letters of what it was like to to try to follow after Torah and to be an unbeliever. And he gives us an inside peek into what his life was like before he became a believer. But I like to remind the Christians who teach that these must be the, way, the weak and beggarly principles, that the Torah must be that. How can Paul simultaneously call the Torah weak and miserable here in Galatians, and yet in Romans call it holy, just, and good? 
I think if we let the weight of Paul's teachings in Romans and especially Colossians that we're going to read here in a moment, if we let the, the weight of his what he says about the Torah and about what he teaches about uh, letting ourselves become subjugated to the elementary spirits of the world all ago in the Stoichion, I think if we let him talk about it there in another passage, which we're going to read, then we're going to get a, a better understanding of what Paul really means by these weak and beggarly elementary principles of the world. Um, let's let the book of Colossians influence our interpretation of this passage here in Galatians. Let's let the two passages talk to one another, especially since they use the same Greek word, the, sto- the stoikion, um, the, to- the stoikion to kosmu, the, the elements, elementary principles of the world. I think if we do that, then we're not going to fall for the historical trap of supposing that Paul is teaching some kind of of a disparaging notion about the Torah, and yet at the same time teaching that it's holy, righteous, and good. Because when we do that, when we have Paul jumping back and forth between two opposing views in his letters, some Christians imagine that this uh, means that Paul changed his views from time to time, or that he was a kind of a chameleon, and he spoke to whatever group needed to hear what... What did we say? He he only tickled their ears and told them what they needed to hear. So, meaning, when he spoke to Jews, he spoke good things about the Torah, but when he spoke to Gentiles, he spoke disparaging things, calling it weak and miserable and beggarly. I think this turns Paul into a kind of schizophrenic who waffles back and forth on his loyalty to Torah. And if that's the case, then I don't think he can be trusted in his writings. But, as you already know, I don't think that is the case. But when we speak of Paul that way, it turns him into that. And so let's not turn Paul into a schizo- schizophrenic uh, person who doesn't really know what the Torah means. Instead, let's read Colossians for a moment and see if we can uh, make a little bit of sense of this same phrase about the stoikion tu kosmu. Uh, this is Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, starting in verse 20. Paul says in that location there, quote, Since you died with Christ to the elementary spiritual forces of this world, it's the same Greek phrase, if I were to go back and look it up, since you died with Christ to these, right? This is the same thing you just said in, in Galatians. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Similar to the Galatians wanted to go back to those same rules. And in verse 21 here in Colossians, he describes some of the rules there. Here in Galatians, he talks about the, uh, the days and months and seasons and years. But here in Colossians, he talks about do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Rules, he says in verse 22, rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use and are based on merely human commands and teachings. Verse 23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. Sounds like the, um, sounds like the, uh, uh, what do we call it? The the monastic life style that uh, is is true in many false religions and religions that claim themselves to be true, where we we abuse the body, we live in this kind of ascetic ascetic uh, asceticism, right? Where we go off and live in a high mountain somewhere by ourselves, and we we live with just the bare basics, right? A a a, a rag on our back, basically, right? You know, live in rags and poverty, and no, wear don't wear shoes, and and don't shave, and don't bathe, and don't eat uh, meat, and just eat, you know, a few pieces of vegetables every day, and you, you kind of get the idea. Many religions have this kind of sense of, wow, this looks so wise and so so uh, um, uh, uh, holy and righteous to, 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 you know, say no to all of the comforts of life and, and turn to this life of asceticism. 
And Paul taught, speaks that such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And I think this is kind of interesting myself how Paul basically just lays it bare by saying, "Look at look at this. All of these all of these false religious systems with their their um." their uh, asceticism and their turning away from the, the, the amenities of life and their, their stripping of, of a person of, of anything that's soft and putting on harsh clothes and eating harsh food and living in harsh places and, and things like that. All of that has nothing, uh, nothing in terms of, it, it offers nothing in terms of restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, because there's no change in the heart, there's no change in the inside, you're still the same old man that you were before. So it doesn't matter matter whether you live in posh uh, apartments, you know, high-rise penthouse with with your Mercedes Benz and your Rolls Royce and your 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 um your uh, uh uh you know your Gucci and your Louis Vuitton and your your expensive clothes and 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 your gold and your jewelry and your fancy you know all of that your fancy food your your uh your uh, caviar and whatever. You know, it doesn't matter if you, if that's the man you are and you're unsaved, or you're this this what we you know what we describe um, a, a kind of a um, a Mahatma Gandhi figure, a, a person who lives in kind of abject poverty by choice, who starves himself, uh, as it were, uh, a, a kind of a Buddha figure that you know Buddha when he went into the the the, the the, the person Buddha, who uh, went into a kind of a, a self-imposed uh, starvation mode for a while, um, so that he could, you know, reach nirvana. It doesn't matter which side of the uh, a spectrum, which which extreme you live on, where you have it all, or you you ha- you denounce everything and you have nothing. You know, you kind of like this monk or this extreme, um, uh, extreme, uh, uh, you know, Buddhist or whatnot. Um, Unless you have come to faith in Messiah, you're still a dead man on the inside, and until your heart changes, you're still you're still going to be controlled by your by the old impulses by the old man himself. And so Paul's really describing that here in Colossians two twenty through twenty three, and this fits nicely, as I believe, with the passage here in Galatians where Paul's talking about these same elemental spirits of the world that you died to. Why do you want to turn back to that? As I continue reading my commentary, considering verse 10 below, which we're going to turn to, I've decided that we're not going to turn to it this week, but we're going to turn to it next week. It's amazing how similar these two passages are, the passage here in Galatians and the passage here in Colossians. And when we tie them all together, um, we can see the similarities. And I think it makes uh, for a better application of these verses. Haig makes the comment that those wishing to return to the weak and miserable principles of this verse were perhaps not wishing to turn, per se, to the Torah, but were wishing to straddle the fence between membership in Israel, the visible people of God, and pseudo-membership with the extant imperial cult of Rome. He says that in his commentary to Galatians at page 157. You can see my footnote in there. And so... um, if we if we go down that uh, uh, follow that thought for a moment and go down that road, we could see indeed that the growing persecution from Rome for these believers for no longer participating in the required allegiance to to the gods of Rome, coupled with Paul's uh, pressure to resist proselyte conversion, this actually may have put these Gentile Christians between a rock and a hard place. Right? You know what I mean? 
They were Gentiles by birth. They were not part of the citizenship of Israel from a natural heritage perspective. And so all their life they grew up worshiping the emperor and associated with pagan paganism and idolatry and false religious systems. And their minds were permeated with this idea of the Stoichion and the things like that. And yet now they've come to know Yeshua and be known of God. And what happens is now Paul's asking them to begin to turn away from that former lifestyle of idolatry and paganism and to turn to a true and living lifestyle, a true and living relationship with God, and to continue down the path of righteousness that they started on by the Spirit. And this means a a path, a lifestyle that's described in the pages of the Torah. So I understand that they're going to be taking on a a Torah-based lifestyle, which would include the pages which would include the uh, writings that the New Testament uh, apostles are going to be um, uh, penning eventually, right? Paul's letters are going to eventually be uh, codified and pulled into and uh, uh, defined as canon so that we can uh, bind them together as one uh, rule of living for us today as believers. In other words, we, we, we have one body of scriptures that includes both Tanakh and apostolic scriptures. But... We have to remember that um, to take to make a break from that lifestyle for a, a Greco-Roman citizen of, the, of Paul's day, a person who was not a legally recognized Jew or uh, did not uh, enjoy uh, Jewish ethnicity, this type of person, from from the emperor perspective, still needed to pay allegiance to Rome because this was they were still Roman citizens, and it was a it was a, their duty as a Roman citizen to pay allegiance to Rome's emperors as gods and to participate in the uh, in all of the uh, Roman festivals and to participate in the uh, uh, the otherwise the uh, the, the, the um, all of the the Roman pageantry and pagan paganism that that was permeated their society around them it wasn't as easy for them to just turn away from that and yet Paul also tells them don't convert don't become Jewish don't run to the synagogue just for the sake of of um, trying to escape the persecution that you're going to get from Rome Indeed, if you stay the course, Paul would tell them, you're going to receive persecution from Rome, but you're also going to receive persecution from the synagogue for your faith in Messiah and for not converting and becoming legally recognized Jews. You're going to receive persecution as well. So you're going to get it from both sides. So what's my advice to you? What's my admonition to you? Hold fast to the head. Keep your eyes set on Messiah. Put on the armor of God. Be filled with the Spirit, and take a stand in Messiah. Don't give in to the um, to the uh, 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 pressure on either side of you. You're going to be in the in in the squeezer. I know you're going to be in the uh, in the uh, crucible, and it's going to be a hard place to be. But the the same Spirit that brought you to this place is going to sustain you as you rely on Him. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus, and you cannot fail. And uh, that's really what we're speaking about when we talk about uh, resisting turning again to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. Don't return to a lifestyle that uh, you used to walk in as Gentiles. Don't turn back to that. Indeed, for Jews, as I bring my commentary to a close, for Jews, those who did not have that lifestyle yet grew up in a Torah-based lifestyle, and let and remember, recall what I said, that until you came to faith in Messiah... Even though your community espoused to to a Torah-based lifestyle, right? You were the community of Israel. And even though you were shielded from the 
uh, the general paganism and 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 uh, pantheon of gods and the the general mindset of the Stoicheon and things like that, even though you weren't a Gentile pagan for, in your eyes, uh, even though you called yourself a member of Israel and and um, and kept Torah to the best of your ability, you were raised in a Torah spe- Torah obedient uh, home and things like that, and you walked into the festivals and and kept kept those things until you come to faith in Messiah, you. St- Two were uh, under the influence of demons and devils, and to be sure, you were a slave of your own self-righteousness. You were a slave of your own baser nature. You were a slave of your own uh, blindness and your own weakness and your own uh, fallen state of humanity that you inherited from Adam. In other words, you were still uh, lost and on your way to hell without Messiah. So as as I close my commentary out, and we'll pick all this up next week since I went a little longer... My final sentence is that Paul would not have them return to emperor worship, these Gentile Christians, or those people who are in decision mode. Uh, He would not have them return to emperor worship, and he would not have them submit to the message of the influencers and become Jews just so that they can escape the persecution from Rome. Remember, Rome gave a uh, what we call a um, an exclusion. To the Jewish people, this this I can't remember the the the, the Latin term, but uh, Rome actually recognized Israel as as a, what we call a collegia, uh, and he allowed them to enjoy uh, their own autonomous worship of their own god. In other words, uh, Rome allowed for monotheism monotheism in that day only if you were uh, a Jew, if you were a Roman citizen then you had to worship the emperor. And if you didn't worship the emperor, then it was treason. And you were liable to get your head lopped off. If, if lob, Lopped off? Lobbed off? <laughs> get your head cut off if you didn't uh, uh, pay your allegiance to the emperor and join in the, uh, the Saturnalia and all of the other pagan paganism and pageantry around you. But if you were Jewish and you were recognized by the Jewish people as being Jewish, in other words, you were either born Jewish or you had a declared... Jewishness, right? You're you're a practical Jew, then um, you could be exempted from emperor worship, and basically you were safe under the umbrella of the synagogue, and you could worship the one true God, even though you weren't a believer in that one true God. You were simply a converted Jew, or you are legally recognized Jew based on marriage or or adoption or something like that. And Paul's telling the Gentile Christians, don't go down that route. You're Gentiles, you're believers, there's nothing that a conversion or Jewish status can add to you. And indeed, it's going to create an unnecessary um, unnecessary distraction to start going down that route. Because ultimately, the Torah, as defined by the religious Jews of Paul's day, did not allow for Gentile inclusion among their ranks. And therefore, Paul's going to warn them later on in Galatians chapter 5 that if you go down the route of proselyte conversion, and if you convert and become a Jew, you're going to eventually have to abandon your fellowship with your uh, Gentile families and your friends and your other Gentile believers. And that's something that is against the written Torah itself. So we'll stop there. Paul would not have them return to emperor worship, I say, and he would not have them submit to the message of the influences either. Oy vey! Talk about being in a pickle. All right, we'll close the commentary tonight with that, and uh, we'll pick up next week, uh, chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, and keep moving through this chapter, okay? Let's close in prayer. 
Lord, I thank you for bringing us together once again under your spirit, under the words of your Torah, under the banner of Yeshua, our Messiah. We thank you that you have given us this mandate that we can follow after you, that we can have assurance of our place as sons, as as um as righteous heirs, as children of Abraham. And it's not because of works that we have done or can do, but it's because that you have sent the Spirit into our hearts as we have surrendered to your Son's work. And we know, Lord, that you are continuing to keep us and to uphold us. It's not that we began by the flesh, and are that not that we began by the Spirit and are being upheld by the flesh, but rather we began by the Spirit and, and are continuing by the Spirit. And so let us ever remind ourselves that it is the continuing work of Messiah in our hearts and in our lives that we are uh, brought and sustained and uh, brought to this place where we can continue to worship with you and worship with one another. Give us a heart to do good. Give us a heart to seek your face. Give us a, a mind to know your will and to do it and to demonstrate it in the earth. Help us to be light. Help us to be salt. Help us to be a witness to those around us. Help us to not be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to continue to um, study, to, to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Help us, Lord, to um, not be fearful in these last and evil days. Uh, give us a strength to know that you are our sustainer, that you are our provider, even in the midst of these uh, tremendous uh, um uh, what are we? Natural disasters that are taking place all around us. I'm thinking particularly of the most recent two hurricanes uh, uh, that are hitting, that have hit uh, the near the Gulf of Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, and now Florida being hit by Hurricane Irma. Um, and uh, we pray, Lord, for the people in those surrounding areas that you'll have mercy and grace and that you'll protect them and that you'll help them to know that you are the God who controls the weather. You are the God who controls all of life's circumstances and that if they would place their trust in you, that they can be safe from the spiritual storm that will come and engulf all of humanity one day. Thank you, Father, for giving us this opportunity to study. We'll pray that you'll be with each and every student that has joined me tonight. I pray that you'll protect their families and that you'll raise us up and that you'll bring us back together next week once again. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, 
You can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>